Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and absolutely thrilled this week to have with us today James Crabtree, author of The Billion, the Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. James, thank you so much for your time here today. We appreciate you coming. Thanks, Frank. It's great to be here. Much appreciate you having me on. No worries. And 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 in the spirit of picking on our, our uh, American friends who are listening to the, the podcast, what, what's the easiest way for them, them to get their arms around? What does it mean to be a Raj and in the context of historically what it meant and, and where you place the term today? Uh, so the word Raj, um, it comes from a Sanskrit term. It, it means rule or government. And it used to be, uh, originally, it was the, the word used to describe the British Empire in India. It was called the Raj. And so after that, the phrase became popular. It was used to describe uh, different periods in India's history. One was called the License Raj, uh, when India was a socialist economy after the Second World War and until the early 1990s. And so I called the book The Billionaire Raj to describe, a, in a sense, a series of very rapid changes that have come over India as it's liberalized over the last 10 or 20 years, and in particular, the rise of the Indian super-rich and what, what, and what was the catalyst for this? Because, and again, maybe for our, for our listeners, you can give us some context in terms of, you know, you started out as a reporter, correct, for the FT? Uh, yeah, so I, I have a bit of a checkered history. I, I used to work for the British government and did other things, but latterly I was a reporter for the FT. And so I lived in Mumbai in India uh, from 2011 to 2016 before I moved here to Singapore to be your neighbor, Frank. Um, and so I wrote for the, the companies and markets section of the FT. I covered Indian conglomerates, Indian banking, Indian finance. Uh, but living in Mumbai, I was also living cheek by jowl with um, some of the richest people in the country um, in Russia. These are called oligarchs in India. Sometimes people jokingly call them boligarchs. And so I became increasingly fascinated by the, the Indian super wealthy of whom there are um, an increasing number, um, uh, nearly uh, 100, 120 billionaires now. So not quite as many as in the US, but a, a very large number for such a poor country. Is there any comparison to to an Indian billionaire relative to, to a US billionaire? I mean, can, can can an American look at them in the same context, or or is there just is it just so different in terms of how they carry themselves in society? 
So I think the, in, the, the book subtitle, the book is called The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. And so there I'm making a reference to the American Gilded Age. And so I think the way to think about that is think of your classic American Gilded Age tycoons, the Rockefellers or Jay Goulds or uh, people of that, that stripe. Um, and, and those are the kinds of figures who you have um, in India today. So the richest man in Asia is a gentleman called Mukesh Ambani. He lives in a very famous house in Mumbai. It's known as the, the billion dollar home. He runs a, a company called Reliance Industries. He has a fortune of $50 billion. And he and the other large industrial titans of India's modern business scene bear some resemblance to the, the robber barons of the post-Civil War American Gilded Age. They run um, diverse conglomerates and industrial businesses. They tend to maintain family control. They're buccaneering and aggressive. They're often uh, sullied by accusations of crony capitalism, as was true in the US at that time. So that's what I would think of. In India at the moment, you have something that looks a little bit like the American Gilded Age with all of the growth and dynamism, but problems that came along with that. And, and, and help give us some, uh, I, I'm familiar with the home, but maybe for our listeners, can you give them some context in terms of the name? And, and I think also just visually what, what this residence looks like relative, you know, A, itself, and then B, in the context of the neighborhood that it's in. Well, it's a bit like if Trump Tower in New York was lived in only by Trump, as opposed to Trump <laughs> having a couple of stories. Um, so you have a residential skyscraper. Um, it is, in theory, about 70 stories tall, although actually it's only about 30 stories because all of the, the um, floors are triple height and you've got a whole bunch of floors for parking. The building is called Antilia. I think many of your listeners will have seen pictures of this building. It has a strange cantilever design. Nobody really knows how much it was, how much it actually cost to build, but it's often referred to as the billion-dollar home. Um, it, it is certainly thought to be the most expensive private residence um, built in recent years. Um, it's a small, thin tower, uh, but it has a, a floor space which is about three quarters of the size of the Palace of Versailles, and so it's a very, it's a very unusual building. The, the, a residential skyscraper of that size, purely owned by one small family. This is just a Mukesh Ambani and his wife and his three children who live there, along with their various hangers-on. Even in America or London or Moscow or Sydney, other cities around the world that are known for having concentrations of the global super wealthy, there aren't uh, buildings of this sort. So I think I picked on this as the first chapter in the book, and it's on the front cover of the American edition of the book, a picture of this building, because it seemed to suggest that there really was something very unusual going on in India in terms of wealth creation and the people who were creating it. And, and what what was the catalyst for this? I mean, if we, we, we don't have to go back relatively far where, where, where we could look at this and say there you know, this, this class of people weren't there before. There wasn't this preponderance or, or number of billionaires. What actually happened to, 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 to cause this? And maybe, you know, the Ambani's on, on one end in terms of resources are a unique story, especially with their father. Uh, but, but in general, something happened in India. And, and what was that? Yeah, so, I mean, some of your listeners might be aware that India had a previous generation of IT billionaires, but the, the period I'm talking about really happened in the middle of the, the 2000s. So India liberalized its economy after a generation or two of socialism in the early 1990s. But it was really in the mid-2000s, the, the period of the Great Moderation, the run into the Beijing Olympics, the, the kind of the 
peak of what some people call hyper-globalization before the financial crisis. That was the period that India's economy really started to boom. Um, there were only two billionaires in India in the middle of the 1990s. As I say, there are now about 120. And so that number has been going up and up and up. It, it's overtaken Russia as the third place country in the billionaire league behind China um, and the US. And so why is that happening? I mean, it's partly because of India's rapid globalization uh, and growth. It's also partly to some degree because of crony capitalism. So some of India's billionaires, the IT tycoons, and some in other areas have made their money pretty honestly. But there are others who have exploited their proximity to political power um, in order to grow their fortunes faster than perhaps they would otherwise have managed. And you you actually, you have an interesting part of the book where where, where um uh, you, you talk about a car accident and and finding the car and and maybe can you can you quickly share that with our listeners? The beginning of the book tells the story of a car crash that happened um, about five years ago, one uh, Saturday evening in Mumbai, in the middle of the night. Um, this was an Aston Martin that was roaring down a central thoroughfare uh, and spun out of control, crashing into a bus and then another car. Um, the the driver then was whisked away. Um, uh, and there was a mystery for a while as to who had actually been driving the car. It turned out that the car belonged to Mukesh Ambani, the, the richest man in India and the owner of the house that we were talking about. There was some speculation in the press that a member of the Ambani family had been driving the car, although this was strenuously de denied. And eventually one of the family's drivers, a, a portly a uh, 50, 60-year-old man turned up at a police station and turned himself in and, and said he had been driving the car. And, and so this was a much-discussed incident. Now, the truth of it has never really been revealed. And as I say, the Ambani family deny very strongly that um, that anyone was involved apart from this driver who turned himself in. But in a sense, it stuck in my mind because it symbolized the, the power of that family that, that people believed that if they wanted to execute some kind of cover-up, then um, then they they could. The, the Ambani's are perceived to be, in addition to being extraordinarily rich, they're perceived to have huge social and political power, and so people are very nervous about writing about them or or, or being perceived to to cross them. And so that story, to my mind, um, illustrated something that was interesting about the perceived power of India's new super rich. And, and is this something, it, it, to your point on the politics, it is, is how, uh, how concerning is that situation? Because Modi in general, at, at least again, looking back at how he's perceived in the States, um, I, I think it's interesting. There's, this, there's an, a fascinating dichotomy as it relates to what, what may be happening on the ground there versus in the States, how he's perceived. I mean, it, are, do they true up correctly or... Or do Americans really have it wrong as far as what Modi really is and, and what he's about? Well, so you need to be a little careful. So a lot of what I'm talking about in the book is a pre-Modi phenomenon. Narendra Modi was elected prime minister in 2014. And so many of these trends have continued and exacerbated under his leadership. But it wasn't uh, his doing that, that this began. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a problem. I used to write for the Financial Times. Uh, I'm... Uh, you know, I have no particular problem with uh, profitable businesses that make their money fairly or, or people growing rich, particularly if they are innovative. 
Um, but India is also a very poor country, and there's quite good evidence that if you have very sharp levels of inequality, think of countries like Brazil or South Africa, uh, other countries in, in Latin America as well, if you have very sharp and rising inequality, then this leads to a range of different problems. You have seen some of these in the United States over recent years where inequality has increased and you've had a more combustible politics um, as a result of that. In India's case, there's good evidence that it makes it more difficult in very unequal countries to introduce uh, market reforms uh, because market reforms require a social consensus and they, they need the sense that those who are not doing so well out of them will be looked after. That was what happened in East Asia, uh, which although in countries like Japan and Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan, you know, none of these countries are like Sweden. They're not egalitarian left-wing paradises. But when they developed that early stage of economic industrialization, they did so in a way that is much more egalitarian than India or countries like China are managing at the moment. And so I think there are reasons to be concerned about not simply the rise of the mega, mega wealthy who I write about in the book, but also the the trend of rising um, economic inequality in Asia that is coming with that. And interesting, because the in from a reform perspective, you know, is the is the is is and has Modi accomplished what what he set out to? I mean, again, when we look at it from the vantage point of, of, of here in Singapore, um, it looks like some of the things that they've been doing on the inclusion side have been extraordinary. Um, but, but, you know, are we looking at that through rose-colored glasses? I think Narendra Modi's record on economic reform is a mixed one. Um, he, at least for the first, after having been elected in a landslide in 2014, uh, for the first couple of years, he, uh, a lot of people, particularly foreign investors, had a, um, great hopes that he was going to uh, introduce a whole wave of reforms and that, that India uh, although it has since then been largely the, the fastest growing economy, the fastest growing large economy in the world, that he would introduce reforms that would see its growth rate shoot up a further notch and begin to match the, the near double digit or double digit levels that China had posted for much of the preceding two decades. Um, I'm not sure that being fair to him, that that has come to pass. He has introduced some fairly major reforms. There's been further liberalization to foreign investors. There's been a big tax reform where they've introduced a, a kind of value-added tax. But there's a whole host of areas where India hasn't managed to make much progress, um, the obvious ones being reforms to factor markets. So um, it's very, very hard to hire and fire people in India. The labor market is very rigid. It's hard to buy land. It's uh, hard to raise capital um, to some degree. So those are problematic. And then there have been a series of policy mistakes, most obviously the experiment in what's called demonetization, in which they scrapped banknotes in order to fight corruption. And, and that, I think, most reasonable people agree was a bit of an economic disaster. Um, so I think his record is 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 mixed. And certainly, he has not been the 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 market friendly reforming technocrat that that some of his supporters hoped he might have been five years ago. Well, and, and go back to something that you you quickly mentioned. I think is is quite significant because I'm not sure a lot of people realize, um, you know, what he did in terms of, of of the notes that they were trying to take out of circulation and how that was handled. And I and I think to your point, it, it was met initially, or at, at least in some of the more uh, um, uh, academic press, uh, it was interesting to see the folks that supported it and thought that it was very novel, but. 
for our listeners, can you can you maybe explain what that was, what the intent of it was, and then ultimately, to your point, the outcome uh, in terms of how it actually went? Yeah, so I talk about this in um, in the book midway through uh, his term, Modi. Uh, really, from one night to the next, he, nobody expected this, but he gave a television broadcast to the nation and said, "From tomorrow, I think this is a Wednesday." So he said, "From from tomorrow, tomorrow the banks will be closed on Thursday, and when they reopen on Friday, then all." Uh, rupee 501,000 notes. So let's think about that as it's a bit like you take out of circulation uh, the 10 and the 20 and the $50 note, and maybe the $100 note, actually. You take, take mm-hmm. out all of the high-value notes, um, and then you replace them with other notes. And, and the reason he, that this sort of some made some intuitive sense was there was an image that in India's corrupt economy – there was a lot of illegal cash floating around. People literally had uh, millions of dollars worth uh, of cash in suitcases under their beds or sort of secreted away in various places. And that one way to get a lot of that back would be to suddenly get rid of all the banknotes and introduce new banknotes. And then if anyone wanted to change in their old banknotes, they'd have to explain where the money came from or they'd have to pay tax on it. That was the theory. It didn't work out like that at all. Um, very few people actually do have cash in India. I mean, if you have ill-gotten gains, of which plenty of people do, you turn it into gold or property or equities. Um, and and so and those who did have cash of that sort found ways to launder it very effectively. But the more important point was that the disruption that this caused. Your listeners may remember pictures of enormous queues of people um, lining up in front of cash machines that didn't have any money caused a huge amount of economic disruption. Um, you know, you're talking of... Uh, you know, tenths of a percent knocked off um, GDP for a couple of quarters, which is is quite substantial and, and an impact on unemployment. So while in theory this was popular for a while because it appeared as a populist measure that was aimed at uh, hitting people who had been corrupt, who had got ill-gotten gains in one way or another, um, actually it did very little to uh, um, remedy that while at the same time creating a lot of economic disruption. And it did Modi's reputation as a sensible economic steward of India's economy quite a lot of damage. And, and also to that effect, I mean, there, is it fair to say there's been maybe some instability at, at, at their central bank in terms of consistency on that end and, and folks staying there for the long term? Um well, actually, India's record on monetary policy has been quite good over the last three or four years, if measured purely by inflation. Now, inflation has gone down everywhere around the world. We're in a period, if not of deflation, then surprisingly low inflation, given how well the world economy is going. And India has been part of that. But actually, India's monetary policy framework under the last two or three central bank governors has improved. And so India, which used to have runaway double-digit inflation, actually now has inflation that is reasonably under control. However, the political economy of um, the Indian Central Bank has been pretty rocky. Modi has managed to rather carelessly lose not one but two uh, quite good central bank governors. First, the economist Raghuram Rajan, who teaches at the University of Chicago, famous in the US for being one of the thinkers who saw the financial crisis coming in a speech he gave at Jackson Hole in 2005. Um, And and so he left after his first term, effectively, he was fired. Um, And then latterly, uh, uh, another central bank governor uh, resigned uh, in protest at what was perceived to be institutional interference from Modi and his government. Um, And so yes, the relationship between New Delhi, uh, where the government sits and Mumbai with the financial capital, capital where the central bank sits has been pretty rocky. How interesting. And, and, 
I, I think too, it's also interesting and, and, and you, you, you talk to this as well is, and again, what is the easiest way for our listeners to understand why the disparity of growth between the two countries? Because I mean, when, when, when you look at it just numerically, uh, there's so much potential uh, in India in terms of where it could be. And then at the same time, when you compare it to China, um, again, th- these were two, two societies that, that were, you know, in, in a relatively short period of time ago were, were equals. And, and, uh, and now there's almost no comparison between the two. Well, so, I mean, India has been growing faster than China for the last two or three years. But yes, over the last 20 years, China has grown vastly faster. You've got to, so China began to liberalize much earlier. Um, India liberalized in 1991, China 10, 15 years prior to that. I mean, the simple way to understand this is they have very different kinds of economies. So India is a noisy democracy. Um, Latterly, at least, it has been more market-orientated China um, a state-led economy, although one that, that has introduced uh, market reforms. But China's political system gives it certain advantages in this early stage of industrialization. Um, much easier to build uh, to build infrastructure uh, and develop basic industries than it is um, in India. So that, that, that's been one thing. China has also had much greater success um, in following the the model of successful East Asian development, which prioritizes manufacturing infrastructure investment and export-led growth. So that was the way that all of the Asian tigers grew rich, and it's the way that China until very recently has grown rich. And India um, has struggled to follow that that same model. Its manufacturing base is weak. It doesn't um, uh, export uh, anywhere near um, the proportion of its economy as some of these Asian countries. And so taken together, that has meant that it has been more difficult for India to sustain the kind of very rapid growth rates that that some Asian economies, and particularly China, managed in the early stages of their industrial growth. So for India then as a democracy, is it is it is it just a function of they just simply can't do it? Or or is it just a function that over time they they, they should surpass? Well, I mean, that's the $10 million question, isn't it? Uh, or uh, <laughs> however, we, however we say that, uh, the million dollar question, I suppose. Um, uh, India's democracy makes it difficult to do certain types of policies. Um, there are lots of veto points. Lots of people can say no. There's lots of different political parties. Um, it, it's also a heavily regional country. So in China, most people are Han Chinese. India is much more diverse linguistically um, in terms of regions. Um, and, and so that means that the, the political system is sticky. On the other hand, that can be a strength in, in, the, in the medium to long term. Let's say you and I, James Crabtree and Frank Troyes, have a bet now which uh, of India or China is going to have the same political system in 2050 or 2075 that it has now. I think you could, with reasonable confidence, take uh, India's side in that bet. India is a multi-party democracy of the sort that many countries have uh, when they are they are rich. But if China is going to become a rich country by being a, a sort of neo-Leninist autocracy, then it's going to be doing something unprecedented in economic history. So in some senses, India's political system is more stable uh, or potentially more stable in the long term than, uh, than China's, even if it has in some ways inhibited its ability to grow very rapidly in the early stages of modernization. And what is the best way today to categorize the relations between India and China? 
Frosty, um, I mean, these are Asia's two, uh, two most important economies. They are going to become regional rivals as China has, uh, after the financial crisis, become more of a presence internationally and begun to tussle with the US. At the same time, it has also begun to project itself around Asia, so not just in places like Singapore, where we live, but also around the Indian Ocean. India doesn't like that very much. Uh, and and so there's there's quite a lot of tension in the in the Sino-Indian relationship. Um, not that long ago, they had a border skirmish in the in the Himalayas. Uh, they have fought wars in living memory and have unresolved border disputes. Um, and, and and so yes, the the relationship between the two countries is quite tense. And India, for the last twenty years, really has been edging closer and closer to the U.S. Um, becoming not an ally, but um, as it has warily watched China's rise, then it has um, improved ties with the US. During the Cold War, India used to be non-aligned, but but sort of basically was more friendly towards Russia than the US. And, and gradually over the last 10 or 20 years, it has got drawn closer to the US. And the basic sort of thinking there is uh, India, if, it, if it's worried about China, needs a friend in the US for balance. And likewise, looked at from Washington, if uh, India continues to rise, then China can never be the sole dominant uh, superpower in, in Asia. So both the, the, the US and India have a, a self-interest in, in each other's success to some degree. And so from a US perspective, it's almost in, in the Americans' interest to actually play one against the other then. Not real well. Could you could look at it like that? Um, I would put it differently, which is that many in the United States see it as in their interest to help India rise in order to balance China eventually. So not to divide and rule and to try and get India and China to fight with one another. That there may be some who who feel that way, but I think it, it's more likely that in in Washington, you'll find some people who believe that India, that, that the US should go out of its way to help India. Now, some of them do that on ideological grounds. India is a fellow democracy, um, and therefore we have something in common between the US um, and India. Others are much more pragmatic and say, look, we're worried about China. There's this other giant country in, in Asia. So long as this other giant country in Asia continues to, to do well, then China can never dominate, become a, a hegemon in Asia, uh, to use a, the, the word that international relations scholars like to use. And so we should do what we can to be to be friendly to India. And, and so, I mean, the relationship between the US and India also has its ups and downs. India can be an awkward partner. And certainly at the moment under Trump, the Amer America can be a very awkward and, and, and changeable partner as well. Um, nonetheless, the lesson of the last 10 or 20 years is that India and the US have gradually become uh, closer in various different ways. And a lot of that has to do with China. And what, and what do you see as the, the, the US role in the region? And, and maybe to just let's use one subtopic, you know, you, you alluded to earlier in terms of the projection of uh, maritime power and, and India, you know, that that's important to them. China has obviously been top of mind in terms of some of the, uh, you know, some of their island building and and and, um, but what, what you know from a U.S. perspective, I mean, what what should we or what should the U.S. be thinking about in terms of its role in the region? Is is it is it a function of protecting the waterways? Is is how much of this should we be inserting ourselves in versus how much of this should we just step away and just let it play out? 
Well, I think under Trump, it's it's hard to say. Under Obama, if you remember, Obama had his pivot to Asia. Um, the notion being that America was spending far too much time in places that weren't all that or becoming less strategically important, like the Middle East, particularly as the US became self-sufficient in energy, and not enough time thinking about the place where the future of the world is going to be decided and run, which is, you know, which is Asia. And so Obama spent quite a lot of time for good or ill trying to rebuild relationships with its traditional allies in this part of the world. India isn't a traditional ally, but uh, Australia, Thailand, uh, South Korea, and Japan are. India was a, a, a friendly nation with ASEAN as well, the Southeast Asian nations. Under Trump, this has become much more complicated because Trump has different instincts. On the one hand, he wants to be friendly with people uh, who are not well disposed to China because he has big problems with China. On the other hand, he wants to pull back from uh, commitments uh, in, in in all parts of the world, and particularly in Asia, and so that has problems uh, for allies like Japan and Korea, where he wants them to spend more money for for defence. Um, there's also the trade war, which just creates havoc uh, all around the region. So America designed the trade agreement called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and then U.S. politics turned against trade, and um, and Trump pulled out. Hillary Clinton would probably have had to have pulled out as well. Uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is the big Asian trade deal that was meant to be the the, the 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 linchpin of America's economic strategy in this part of the world, and then the U.S. abandoned it. So the, these things pull in different directions, and so un, under Trump, it, it's a little bit hard to work out exactly what America's policy uh, in Asia is, um, and and so you 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 look in all sorts of different directions from the negotiations with Korea to the U.S.-China relationship to the broader trade war and what that means for economic liberalization and. And you, you have to divine something out of all of this chaos. You know, it's interesting. And I, and, and I apologize because uh, um, uh, you've been very gracious with your time. And I'm going to sneak in one more question. And, and forgive me, because we could probably spend an hour just on, on this topic alone. And and, um, and that's in regards to Pakistan. And and it, it it's fascinating. You know, one anecdotal story I thought I wasn't even aware of this. But apparently when there was the incident with the planes, uh, apparently, the U.S. Air Force was was highlighting the fact that um, you know it, it it highlighted the the dominance of the American planes because apparently the Indian plane was a, I guess an old MiG or or, or was a Russian uh, jet. But how does Pakistan factor into this, and and how should we be thinking about that as well? Because it, it seems that that's it, it's it, you know on the one hand you you want to assume that they're a rational actor in the region and 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 the current leadership seems to be trying to project that and on the other it seems like that could be the curveball that no one expects. I think if your listeners are looking for potential flashpoints in Asia, then you have a, a reasonably short list. So Taiwan with China, the East China Sea with China and Japan, and then then India Pakistan. India Pakistan both have nuclear weapons. They have a history of border skirmishes, and particularly under. Narendra Modi, India has a prime minister whose instinct is to be quite hawkish. So um, a little while before we're talking on this podcast, there there was this um, cross-border incident in which India retaliated against a terrorist strike. There was a dogfight between Pakistani um, F-16 bought from the United States and then a couple of MiG planes that India was flying. Um, I, I think this just shows that the relationship between India and Pakistan is is an unstable one um, and uh, one that has to be watched quite carefully. Uh, and as 
India becomes more economically powerful and its military becomes stronger, this creates a great deal uh, of anxiety um, in Pakistan. And I suppose in that sense, it's part of the bigger picture that I talk about in the book, uh, which is India's rise as a serious world power um, over the next 20, 30, 40 years to mid-century, when we will begin to think of, of India in the same way that we think of China today. Amazing. And, and, and James, before we go, what, what would be the one, you know, coming back to the book and, and your experiences in India, what, would, what is maybe the one anecdotal experience uh, that you had that you think would really stand out to listeners to give them some perspective? Oh, gosh, I mean, India is an amazing place to live. And, and you see things every day where you think, gosh, I can't believe I just saw that. Or I can't believe I just happened. That, <laughs> that, that, that just happened. But I think that the thing that's going to be interesting is I, I think it's fair to say that most people um, in, in the US or in the UK are, are passingly familiar with India. You know, they know it's a big and important and interesting country, but maybe the details of the, the politics or the economics um, are, are not something with, with which people are familiar. And that's going to change over the next 10, 10 20 years. Um, much like China today, India is going to grow eventually to surpass the US as the world's second largest uh, economy. And so we will be as familiar with Indian politics and Indian companies as we are today with Alibaba or Tencent or, or the you know the real the real giants of of corporate uh, figures from the emerging world. And so I think that's what I took out of my time there and why I wanted to write a book about it. Well, fantastic! And, and James, again uh, for our listeners, uh, James Crabtree, the billionaire Raj: A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. Uh, a wonderful read. At times, a surreal read. And, uh, and again, it just feels very much like it's still current and, and something that, that'll be fun to follow. And, and James, we did a good job of today as, as well. I, I hope you can uh, 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 let me sneak by without asking you any questions about Brexit. I'm hoping we can save that for another podcast. And, and again, uh, I know today we kept it very, very tight at 30 minutes. But thank you very, very much for your time. Super. Thanks, Frank. That's great. Uh, much appreciate you having me on. Thank you, sir. And have a wonderful weekend. Very good. Bye.